Welcome to Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. Today we have two incredible and very different rescue stories from our April 2018 live event featuring Alaskans at their best and their worst. First we'll hear a story from pilot Mike Spindler about rescuing a pair of scientists out on the sea ice. We had to get those guys off the ice. It was going to get cold that night. There was a waking up bear wandering around near them. But worse, the ice is moving. Even if we knew where they were, they may not be there the next day. Then Amanda Bird will tell her story about a team of scientists who were forced to improvise the rescue of a fisherman at sea. One of the crew members is very gently, quietly, methodically pulling on a dry suit. And he's just pulling it on over his clothes, just very serenely. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, this is going to be a recovery. We're not pulling a live person out of the water here. We're pulling a dead person. Alaskan Rescues, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. In 1988, Mike Spindler was assisting a group of researchers who were studying polar bear populations off the coast of Alaska. The plan was for Mike to fly his small plane, equipped with skis, out over the sea ice to find polar bears for the scientists to study. His friend Gunner would fly the researchers to the bears in a helicopter, where they would shoot the bear with a tranquilizer dart from the air, get some data on the bear, put a radio collar on it, and then take off and head on to the next bear. On this particular day, they had a journalist named Bruce along who wanted to document the whole process. Safe to say it may not have been the best day to have a journalist along, although he did end up earning his keep. Here's Mike Spindler. So a little bit about the navigation. There were shore stations at Shishmaref and at Kotzebue. And so we could figure out our position accurately if you wanted to by putting the chart on your lap and getting the and a protractor and getting the angle from those two shore stations and where that lines those two lines intersected that was your position so you can imagine how practical that wasn't a super cub or a helicopter <laughs> with a stick the throttle or the helicopter pilot with their hands on the collective and on the stick get out that chart get out that protractor let's figure out where we are well there's a new thing just coming out just then, new for aviation, had been used for quite a while for shipping, and that was Marine Loran. And we were using the signals from a triangle of stations formed by Nome, Attu, and Kodiak, supporting the Bering Sea fishing fleet and shipping. And inside that triangle, those were accurate to less than a half a mile and highly reliable. Well, we were well north of that triangle, and um, even if it was good for one or two or three miles, that was still better than nothing because otherwise it's all sea ice or protractors. But the worst thing about it was sometimes it wouldn't work at all. Well, Bruce, the journalist and photographer, wanted to photograph the operation, but the helicopter could not do all the maneuvering it had to because when you're collaring a bear, a biologist has to lean out the door with a gun tranquilizer dart gun and a helicopter maneuvers very low over the bear probably 10 or 15 feet and fires a dart tries to get it into the rump of the bear because the added weight of the journalist uh, he had to stay behind on the ice at a place that I picked out to land so the plan was then normally 
the helicopter would stay with the biologists while they worked on the bear, and it took them about an hour to do the data and uh, fit the collar. But this time, because he had to come get Bruce over where I was, he lifted off. All the survival gear was in the helicopter and not with the guys on the ice. So Bruce was looking at the helicopter. We couldn't see when they were darting. They were over the horizon, but the uh, helicopter lifted off from the guys and headed our way, and soon we could see them. So Bruce, kind of absentmindedly while we're waiting, just kind of scuffs the snow like that, makes an arrow pointing the direction where the helicopter is coming from. That arrow was going to be really important later in the day. It was already getting to be uh, late afternoon because we'd been looking all morning and unsuccessfully. So I hear on the radio, Bruce is looking, binoculars, and I'm on the radio, headphones outside the cockpit, we're standing outside, and I hear, do you read me? Yeah, read you loud and clear, Gunner. Do you read me? How do you read? I said loud and clear. Long radio silence. It's not a good thing. I think he realized that about the same time I realized that the biologist's portable radio wasn't working. So Gunner landed where I was and said, you know, I couldn't get a Loran fix for those guys and the radio doesn't work. We've got to go look for them. So Bruce gets in the helicopter and I get in the cub and Gunner and Bruce do a grid search back and forth where Gunner thought the guys were used up all his fuel, had to come back and land on the Ice Pan Airport. And we rendezvous again. I was in the Cub, I flew up higher and around a little bit further distance trying to find him. As the day wore on, the shadows behind the pressure ridges were getting long. Finding those guys without a radio or without a Loran fix was way worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. We decided on the Ice Pan what to do we had to get those guys off the ice. It was gonna get cold that night. There was a waking up bear wandering around near them or near us. We couldn't overnight the aircraft on the sea ice. The engines wouldn't restart the next morning without electricity to plug them in. But worse, the ice is moving. Even if we knew where they were, they may not be there the next day. The ice is always moving. Open leads can open up. Open water where polar bears hunt, the seals. I had selected that ice pan earlier because it was handy to where the bear was that we did find. So I decide that, uh, you know, my wing tanks are full, I got lots of gas, and I've emptied my belly tank. I can go get some jet fuel because Gunner was out of jet fuel there was a cache at the airport at Shishmaref. I hadn't seen it, I just was told that it was there. So I took off once again, Bruce and Gunner waiting on the ice. I head out towards Shishmaref. It's starting to get dark now. I'm looking over the area where we were just searching with no luck. I'm following the radio beacon into Shishmaref. I hear it's Cessna 172 called traffic over Shishmaref pilot's name was Paul. I said, uh, do you have much fuel on board, Paul? He was flying along the north shore of the Seward Peninsula on a long flight towards Kotzebue and he just filled up. Yeah, I have plenty of fuel. I said, we could sure use some help out here. We got two guys out on the ice 
we can't find them. We're hoping they got some way to signal. Could you go out there and look while I go get some jet fuel for the helicopter? And he says, sure. He had two passengers on board. They were up for an adventure, I guess. So I give him a rough approximate bearing outbound from Shishmara and head on in. I told him Gunner was out there with a the helicopter. If he heard him overhead, he'd call him on the radio. And so Paul gets out over the helicopter. Gunner fires up the radio and says, you fly this compass bearing outbound a few minutes and you'll be in the proximate area where the guys are. That arrow that Bruce put in the snow is how he based that compass bearing. With Paul the Good Samaritan and his passengers headed out over the sea ice to help search for the lost scientists, Mike Spindler landed at Shishmaref, found the jet fuel cache buried in a snowdrift, and arduously hand-pumped the fuel into the belly tank of his airplane. As darkness crept over the barren sea ice, he took off and headed back out to deliver the much-needed fuel to the helicopter. Flying at night in this area was like flying inside of a black box. Looking out the windows wasn't even going to help him at all. There were no lights on the horizon to indicate what was up and what was down, so he had to rely entirely on his instruments to fly the airplane. On top of that, the question of how he was going to land next to the helicopter in the dark on ever-shifting sea ice that's more like a boulder field than the skating pond you might be thinking of, with no runway lighting to guide him in for the landing, was something he really didn't want to think about at that moment. Frankly, it would have been safer for him to try and land on the moon. I'd asked Gunner to turn on his lights when I got close, and I'd told Bruce... Among two aircraft and three people, there was only one flashlight. So I told Bruce to go down to the far end of the ice pan that we were working. This ice pan was surrounded by pressure ridges. They were about 15 feet high. Foreign-born other ice pans collide with it as the ice is always moving. I said, Bruce, go to that far end, and I want you to wave that flashlight when I get overhead, just like the airliners being guided into their parking places. So I come in, and I'm on final approach. Bruce is waving the light. I knew it's pretty short, and I'm pretty heavy. So I come right in over the top of the pressure ridge. I later found out Bruce had to dive out of the way. He was worried I was going to hit him. Bruce and Gunner had got some cardboard and some newspapers that was packing material for the radio collars in the helicopter. They soaked them in jet fuel and set them out on the ice and ran down the runway, lighting them off. It was that fire on ice that made this operation possible and safer. Ingenuity. Well, we landed. I landed, got out of the Super Cub. As the cold air hit me, I was pretty jittery. And uh, we uh, proceeded to pump the jet fuel back into the tank of the of the helicopter, just really hurrying up. And so then uh, Paul's still circling. He must have been circling well over two hours with his passengers on board. A few of them got sick because of all the circles. <laughs> but uh, so now Gunner's getting directions from the airplane up in the sky. So Gunner comes over the sea ice in that same direction from Bruce's arrow, and then Paul guides him in. What happened was Vic, one of the biologists, had a pen light, just one of those little, little teeny pen lights. That was back in the days before everybody had a little LED headlamp or something like that. He had a little, little pen light like that. And when Paul had gone overhead, he flashed the light. 
And Paul kept circling and circling and circling. Hold that position. Loran wasn't working. There was no GPS in those days. So Paul guided him in, then went on his way. We thanked him. Bruce, being the journalist, when they landed, he asks biologists, what about the bear? What about the bear? And Jerry says, oh, he just got up and walked away. We hid behind a pressure ridge. <laughs> well, I called Vic uh, just last weekend. I called him because I was trying to remember all the parts of the story. Vic told me the bear was the least of our problems. We had a gun. It was really cold. They just had bunny boots and coveralls. Jerry had left his parka in the helicopter, no survival gear, no matches. They had a little piece of plastic that was the case for some darts that was in their day packs. All their day packs had was scientific gear and their lunches. They had scraped out a little teeny place in the pressure ridge, big enough for one person to be in if they had to spend the night. And Vic says, we wouldn't have made it through the night. Mike Spindler, he shared that story at our April 2018 live show in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Our next story from Amanda Bird also features an extremely tricky rescue operation, but this time the rescuers definitely did not work as well together, and the man being rescued, well, he doesn't exactly want to be rescued. A few years ago, Amanda was working with a crew of scientists studying plankton off the Seward Peninsula. The ship they were on, the Alpha Helix, would move from location to location, stopping at various places so the scientists could do their work. Their trips always started the same way, with a safety briefing where the crew instructed them in the use of the various safety equipment on board, which included the usual things like a life raft, a hypothermia bag, and a life ring. Here's Amanda Bird. As we were heading out, it was daytime, so our captain was on the bridge. Now, this is a 24-hour ship. The captain runs the ship from 6 a.m. to 6 uh, p.m., and the first mate runs the ship from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. They hated each other. They loathed each other. Whenever they would switch roles, they would say their pleasantries, they would tell the information that they needed to tell each other, and then they would be gone, never to be seen again until their next shift. So by this time, um, it's around about 6 p.m. We're heading out on the Seward line, and the first mate has just taken control of the ship. And we're about to sit down for dinner. And we hear, for the first time ever, mayday, mayday, mayday. Mayday, mayday, mayday. And this was, like, startling. I've never heard, a, like, a real mayday call. So I ran up to the bridge, and I saw the first mate was on the uh, radio with the Coast Guard. And they were trying to determine who was closest to a stricken vessel. And it ended up that we were the Alpha Helix. So we were told to turn around and head back to Seward and to go and rescue this uh, person in a stricken vessel. So we turned around and headed back. So at this point, the first mate had to rouse the captain and tell him what was happening, that there was an emergency, and that the captain needed to come back to the bridge and take control of the boat. The first mate took control of the deck of the boat, and he was going to be in charge of the rescue. So we headed back to Seward, and we were about 20 miles away from the shore, from any shore. This was in the middle of nowhere. 
and we found a 16-foot personal watercraft, a little fishing boat. Um, it was very heavy in the water, and there was one man in the boat. And this man, he was not wearing a life preserver, but he was wearing a letter jacket. Do you know what a letter jacket is? <laughs> like, okay, I'm from Australia. We don't have letter jackets. I thought they were from the movie Grease. <laughs> so he's wearing a letter jacket. It's, you know, this woolen thing with leather arms and a patch here. I don't know what the letter said. Um, and, you know, he's not wearing a life preserver. And he's a pretty big guy. And also on the boat was a cooler a red cooler, and out of the cooler was a salmon tail. It was a pretty sizable salmon tail. So um, we reached the guy, it was kind of getting dark a little bit, the boat's heavy in the water, the seas were 22 foot troughs. A 16 foot little vessel, little open vessel with a tiny little cab and one man without a life preserver. So we, uh, the captain, you know, made contact, and he backed up the boat to our, our ship to the stricken vessel. And our first mate, he opened the back doors of the Alpha Helix, which brings a nice landing like this um, stage. And it, he asked the man, sir, please step aboard. The Alpha Helix would like to rescue you. And the man says, no, actually, I, I would rather not. And... <laughs> The boat's heavy in the water, the seas are um, going crazy, the Alpha Helix is doing her thing. And he said again, a little more sternly, Sir, you need to step aboard the Alpha Helix, we're here to rescue you. And he said, Well, actually, I, I, I would rather not. And once again, the first mate really got angry. He got really angry and he said, You must step aboard the Alpha Helix right now, we're going to rescue you. And he said, Actually, I don't want to do that. I want you to tow me to shore because I have the prize-winning silver salmon from the Silver Salmon Derby. And I would like you to tow me into Seward, please. So at this point, the guys already agreed not to uh, be saved. So the first mate gets a rope, and after a few attempts, he throws a rope and hits the boat. Um, you know, it's hard to hit a boat when the boats are rolling, because we're rolling this way, the boat's, you know, getting heavier and heavier, and it's rolling too. Anyway, he threw the, uh, threw the rope, and the man grabbed it, and he was ordered to tie it to a very secure point on the boat. He selected the cleat on the front of the boat, which, if you know anything about boats, the cleat is where you tie moorings or buoys. You don't tie something that is going to put massive loads on. Anyway, so he tied the rope onto the cleat. First mate's like, okay, here we go. And he asked the captain to uh, start putting um, tension on the line and start pulling this boat. And so the Alpha Helix took off and the little boat, it came out of the water, that water's draining out of it and it got way out of the water and then ping! <laughs> that rope, just cleat and rope went flying and that little boat just sank back into the water. And because of the, uh, the momentum going backwards, it really started sinking faster. And it wasn't long before it actually, the stern went down and the man was in the water. So now we actually have a man in the water. 
So during our training, whenever we left Seward, we were taught if there was a man in the water, science, that's who we are, should point. And always point <laughs> at the person. So we ran upstairs to where the uh, best view of the man now in the water was, and we pointed. <laughs> and we're very trainable, science. And we're very good at pointing. Give us one task and we can do it very well. So, but it's actually really hard. If you can ever imagine, you know, one, it's a little head you're looking at, right? He's not wearing a life preserver. He's wearing a leather jacket. And he's rolling in these 22-foot troughs. And the, our boat is rolling, so we'd lose him. We'd lose his head and we'd have to really try and find where he was. But we're still pointing. And so we're waiting for the crew, the people who run the ship and look after us, to go and start the rescue. <clears throat> we look down onto the back deck. The crew, including the first mate, have started arguing. They're arguing on how to rescue this person, and the argument is over five minutes long. The guy is still in the water. It's been five minutes. So in the Gulf of Alaska in August the water temperature is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. In 50 degrees Fahrenheit, you have five minutes before you lose dexterity of your hands and fingers. By 20 minutes, you lose, um, you know, your warm blood from your arms and legs gets shunted to your core. By 30 to 40 minutes, uh, that's when you have um, the possibility of passing out and dying. So we're on a time clock right now. It's now five minutes. We're pointing, the crew's fighting, they can't agree on how to do anything. And I look down and the chief scientist, he comes and um, starts playing with the joysticks to move the, uh, the boom, the big crane that we have. We don't use that, the crew uses that. So the you know, chief scientist is moving and he's like, oh, that makes it go up, out, the, we can swing it, we can drop the cable, awesome, I got this guy. So he goes and puts the, the crane over by the guy, drops a cable, and then realizes, well, what's, what's he going to do? He's gummy. He can't grab a hold of anything. He's got nothing to hook onto. So he aborts that, pulls the cable back in, puts the crane away. So, and the guy can't swim to us because he's heavy in the water and he's losing his body temperature. So now it's been 10 minutes and he's really cold and we're pointing. <laughs> And so the um, chief scientist devises a way that they, you know, they're going to put a, a, you know, maybe um, a different way to um, rescue this guy. So I run downstairs at this point. I don't really know why. I run down to the bottom deck, and I find one of the crew members is very gently, quietly, methodically pulling on a dry suit. And he's just pulling it on over his clothes, just very serenely. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, this is going to be a recovery. We're not pulling a live person out of the water here. We're pulling a dead person. And so I bolted back up and <clears throat> I'm going to point as well as I can. And at this moment, the guy's been in the water about 12 minutes. And the bird biologist, amazing. She says, hey, there's a life ring here. Do you think we should throw this? Yes. 
We may not be that trainable. We can point, we can do one task very well, but okay, to multitask, yes. So she grabbed hold of the, the life ring and she threw it into the water and it landed very close to the man and the rope that's attached to it went zzzz, including the end, all the way into the water. So it's like, okay, he has something to, to uh, hold on to now, but you know. So the crew's still fighting, the chief scientist's still devising a way how to do this, and now that the guy is stable, he's got something to hold on to, um, the captain moves the ship over towards the man, and the chief scientist grabs a Jacob's ladder. It's a ladder that's made of rope with rungs on it, and he throws that over the side, and in the hopes that once we get close to the man, he can climb up, except his hands are gummy. But what it did provide was a really good leverage point for he and another man to use the Alpha Helix rolling, and she was really rolling, and when the Alpha Helix rolled down, the chief scientist and another scientist grabbed one arm of this man each and pulled him up over onto the side. And he landed in a puddle of wetness. And the chief scientist and this other scientist were screaming when they pulled this man over. And we're like, what? Why, why are you screaming? And as it happens, we didn't know that this man was 380 pounds and six foot seven. And now he's soaking wet. So uh, one of the scientists had broken ribs. And so, but the guy's safe, he's on board, he's severely hypothermic. He was in that water for 20 minutes, 20 minutes. And so we had to put him into a hypothermia bag, which is essentially a mummy bag that's made of nylon that is filled with fleece. And so you put it over somebody, you zip it up over their head, and it has a hole for their face. Except this guy is six foot seven. And so the bag comes up, the top of it's around here, and the hole for his face is down here. And so whatever. So he's in the mummy bag, he looks ridiculous, but he's shivering, but we started getting the blankets and we put the blankets on top of him. And we started asking him questions to keep him lucid. So we asked him his name and we asked him where he was from and he was from Anchorage and he ran a car wash. So, and we asked him if he was married and he was started to get a little shifty. And we're like, oh, and, and he said, yeah, I left my wedding ring and my gun on the boat and my wife will be really angry. So, and we also asked him if he'd had any other boats before. And he said yes and he started to tell us a little bit about the boats. And he was really excited that he had purchased this new boat and he just purchased it and he spent all of his money on it and he forgot to save money aside for insurance. So now the boat is sinking to the bottom of the Gulf of Alaska. And he started to tell us about his prize winning fish and how he was really sad that he missed that prize winning fish. But we'd asked him what he had, what had happened to the last two um, boats that he had. And he said, they sank. <laughs> but he was going to come out this weekend with his buddies and they were going to pull up his boat and get his gun and his wedding ring and go out and catch another salmon. So the things that I learned about this trip <clears throat> If you're going to make any sizable purchase, 
put some money aside for some good insurance because you never know what's going to happen. The other thing I learned is those who are in control don't always take control. Thank you very much. Amanda Bird. She shared that story at our April 2018 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Today's episode was edited by Ryan Peterson and myself, Rob Prince. Audio recording for our stories was by John Hoff of Alaska Universal Productions. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.